OTB Sports Rugby. Some of the hype around Jack Crowley has been premature. He's played pretty well, but having him as the second coming of Christ seems to be a little bit aggressive. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. The lads say Graham Hunter is with us. Graham, good morning to you. How are you? Hit top, yeah. Uh, still buzzing after a hot weekend of La Liga football. Um, I, I want to maybe wreck the buzz a little bit by asking about Gianluca Vialli because um, obviously the news came uh, at the weekend of his, his passing and he'd been sick for a while. We did get that iconic image of himself and Roberto Mancini in tears at the end of uh, their Euros victory and it just felt like um, it felt like uh, there's something special in that moment where here's a footballer who's won everything, he's been like the best footballer in the world, the most expensive transfer and at the end of it it, come down, it comes down to friendship and love of the game and um, an emotional release. So that was, that was the one that I remembered the most over the course of the weekend, not the playing days and... and um, you know all the glamour and the glory and all that, all that stuff. It was actually it was just a moment that he shared with a mate on a pitch where it was just the two of them, even though the whole world was watching. Um, I know for you it was a, a personal relationship that you had with him over a long period of time. Yeah, I can't. Much, I mean, I agree with everything you've said there, particularly because football fractures loyalty, fractures friendship. Um, football tells great stories, great human stories, not just great sporting drama, but. To see them scratch the one itch that for both of them was the thing that they lacked most to, to, to take the Atsuri to a trophy was fantastic and it coincided with a period when Luca, at least for the first time, had seemed to have superseded cancer. When you talk about a personal relationship, that's true. I feel like I lost, let's call it a friend because we were close. We were able to talk all the time. He helped me repeatedly throughout the years. I'd known him for 27 years. And again and again, when I said, can we do this? Can we do that? Can we do the next thing? He would say, yes, he helped me an awful lot. Funny, warm. Um, I was twice in his home. It dated back to being sent out by an editor to, to Turin in 1995 to try and explain a little bit about the rise and rise of Juventus, how they trained, why they were so fit and relentless, why it was possible. It seems ridiculous now. Yeah. But when uh, Lippi reintroduced the Tridenti three up front, in those days, it, it was still the case. People thought, this is mad. This is you, you, three up front, three in midfield. That's impossible. Not only did they do it, it looked beautiful. That was pressing. They were relentless in the running, whether it was Ravanelli and Lombardo or uh, Viali, Parvan, there was a number of different footballers who could slot into the three. And when I went to Turin, to meet him for the first time, Juve were training in their old Comunale Stadium, which had been their infamous stadium of the last 40, 50 years, and playing in the Deli Alpi. And I was granted access to the club for two or three days, and the first interview I did was at the end of a double training session day. I, again, I know I'm using phrases that now become commonplace, but at that stage, for a Brit, a young uh, guy brought up in British football, to see double training, to see the players staying at the club, having a siesta and, and food in between two training sessions, one at 10, the other one at six, was an eye-opener. And to be told 
that I had access to, to speak to, to a translator, Ben Troni, the fitness trainer who recently died, um, who was at Spurs until the end of his life. Um, I, I was given so much access, but what it needed was um, for, for the journalism to work, was for one of the places to, to sit and explain and, and talk about what the sacrifice felt like, what the training was for, how it helped them. And Luca Viali was the one who volunteered. He had... He had fractured English at that stage. We had a, a woman from the TV station who translated. And it all started because he, in those days, I was wearing a, a three piece pinstripe suit. I don't know why I chose it. It sounds ludicrous now, doesn't it? And so was he. He finished his second training session. He was obviously tired. He came in, sat down in a little dressing room, and he just reached out and he, he felt the fabric. And he was like, Yeah, nice suit, but you're going to have to improve that fabric. <laughs> I thought, yeah, we're, we're going to get on. And that suit joke remained a, a thing between us for the rest of our careers. But again and again, um, when he was the Chelsea manager, he would he would let me uh, ring him up. When he was a Chelsea player, I could be in touch with him, looking for stories, looking for contacts. He, he would take phone calls on the team bus. When he was sacked, I was the first person to go and interview him. It was in his home. I found that an eye-opening experience. And he just opened up and talked about his pain. But across the years, when we did the podcast with him, Luca let me into his home again. It was elegance personified. This English gentleman feel that coincided with the fact that he was quite a privileged man. I mean, he was brought up in Cremona. We, we, there was a huge, elegant waiting room in his house, plus a if it, was, if it wasn't a butler, it was a major domo who elegantly glided across the, the carpets. You could lose your shoes in. They were so thick and deep. And yet he I, I didn't think he, he blunted his privilege. He certainly wasn't um, caught up with money. Uh, he tried to do good in outside his career. He was a funny, witty, wry man. There was always, just like there is, the, if you ever watch De Niro's old films, there's always this little crinkly little grin, like he's seeing another movie in his head. And Luca had that as well. He would he would look at you with a little bit of a mischievous grin in his eye almost all the time. He was funny and warm and I, I really liked him. So we were in contact through his illness and WhatsApping and simply sending him love and support and, and prayers that he got well. And in the end, the fact that he didn't did leave me feeling sad. He's younger than me. What the hell is he going for at this age? Brutal cancer again. How many times have we said that brutal? Shouldn't have been smoking throughout his life, admittedly. And one little piece de resistance, when we went up to Sweden to Svenjör and Eriksson's film to do the big interview with him, he talked about um, managing Viali and Mancini, and he talked about their... You know, they're again their pranks, their mischief, how they ran the club. But he talked about how when he flew in to be interviewed for the job, Mantovani, the president of Sampdoria, told him unequivocally that he'd been selected by a committee of Viali and Mancini, who were players at Sampdoria at that stage. And they would go on to win the only title in the club's history. But Mantovani had such respect for his two players, the, the the gold twins, as they were called in Italian, Mancini and Viali, who you opened talking about, that he went to them, who should be our coach? And they knew sufficiently about football in those days, in the 80s, without internet. To, to say, it should be Ericsson. This should be our man. They selected him. Mantovani said, lad, okay, let's get him in. The three of us will interview him. Ericsson got the job and, and fame and fortune and success followed. It's amazing, Graham, to hear the, your personal stories with him because, by all accounts, he was a beautiful human being as well as a, a brilliant footballer. Um, 
uh, it's funny like I was watching telly at the weekend and <clears throat> the late comedian Sean Locke popped up on screen on one of those uh, one of those chat shows and then straight away afterwards I flicked over to Sky and you see the the old goals of, of Viali and some great moments from his career and you're thinking uh, albeit it's t- a difficult thing to think about now but those goals and highlights from his career are a tangible legacy and thing to hold on to and um, might not be much consolation for his family and friends I'm sure at this uh, point in time but um, a, a beautiful thing to have left you, 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 you've, you've linked it nicely because uh, Sean Locke was obviously a big Chelsea fan mm. but Luca was the major guy for him and he, Sean was represented is was represented by um, the same guy as that reps off the curb that represents Kevin Bridges and there was a point at which I was supposed to have a Kevin Bridges interview and it couldn't happen for various reasons All right, listen I have, I have one of our other clients my first choice was Sean Locke and unfortunately he was unwell at the time and it, it proved again as you say to be to be terminal and when you talk about Lucas goals again like I, was, I loved him I adored him and he was he was good to me not just professionally it was it, it was a, it was, a, it, was a it was a big human experience to watch him and to listen to him but we mustn't even when people depart we, we mustn't call them angels he was very, very demanding, and because he was so demanding of himself, initially when he became coach at Chelsea, one of the reasons that after a flurry of trophies, if you just look at the percentage amount of trophies versus days he was in charge, extraordinary. But he was so demanding in training that he burned a few friendships because it was he, he hadn't quite initially, I mean, taken over in the middle of his career from Rutulit. He, he hadn't learned how to leaven his approach to other players who maybe needed a different touch, a different attitude and training compared to his. And again, I'm not going to make him seem angelic. Joe DeMora's talked about, you know, I, I kind of eulogised Viale at that stage. And Joe DeMora's, who was his teammate, talked about like the, the mad experience of having this Italian man sharing a room when they were all, all, either on tour or um, in pre-season. <laughs> Luca fucking room service not wearing a stick, sitting in the shared room, smoking away and ordering burgers. So it's not my purpose here. And, and throughout the, the tributes, this, these phrases about how warm and intelligent and kind and occasionally gentle a human being he was, those echoed out because they're true. But none of us should be sitting and saying that those were the only sides of uh, Gianluca Vialli. And also, to me, he was, he was elegant and... He's definitely my favourite Italian footballer of all time. And if you think about the, the range of skills that that encompasses in other footballers, that's, that's saying a lot. But to me, he was archetypal of, those images you're talking about, archetypal of the old style number nine, who, who work a defender. And you, if you were watching a Luca Viale performance, you knew you were going to be watching intelligence on the pitch because whether it was his day, whether his team won or whether he scored or not, Central defenders were going to be put to the test about how how fit they were, how smart they were, and he was always scheming and thinking about how to help the team. Very much team man, and I remember when he was sacked by Chelsea, that it wasn't just um, sore to his professional pride. He felt that because he'd been totally up front with them, he felt badly let down by them, and he referred to the man who sacked him. Mr. Nice Guy, Colin Hutchinson was the MD at the time. Again, somebody I was very friendly with. But it was strange for a guy who'd, who'd been a powerhouse at, at, at top for Juventus, for the Azzurri, for Sam, for Chelsea, 
in other words, he he survived in a in a shark infested swimming pool for a long time, but he was genuinely hurt because he felt that he hadn't been subject to fair play. What a strange thing that was to to witness and 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 to get rid of his anger he had to take up kickboxing in his garage. <laughs> what a man. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the, there's definitely a legacy there, particularly in English football because um like when, when Chelsea signed Hollard it seemed like a bit of an outlier, but when they added Viali to it it was like, Oh actually something something has changed here. This is uh it wasn't just a fluke that they managed to get Hullet. Like uh, and it feels yeah. like that's a kind of hinge moment for Chelsea becoming the glamour club or re becoming the glamour club. It, it was because he was still at that um, stage where he was coming towards um, the end of his career. He was out of contract again. To my mind, it linked very strangely because you know earlier that year I'd been in in John Mark Bosman's parents' flat interviewing Bosman when the judgment came in from the European courts that he was going to win his case. And by the end of that season, Gianluca Fiali uh, left for free. So he was amongst the earliest to be able to go at end of contract and, and choose Chelsea over Rangers um, because it had been Rangers that Juventus had defeated so thoroughly that caused my editor to say, go and study why is it they're doing this, why are they playing it? And Walter Smith was sadly departed now too. Walter Smith was the head of the game. He was negotiating via a Scottish agent, Athol Still, to try and persuade Luca Vialli to come to Ibrox at the end of the season instead of going to Chelsea. Now, in retrospect with what was happening at Chelsea, it seems obvious that Luca would choose that. But he, he talked to me about how um, how he'd found a like mind, a like soul in Walter, because Walter was a gigantic character um, who loved uh, good food, fine wine, who loved Italy, Italian fashion, rock music. And Vialli and Walter Smith found real friendship and a, and a real... Connection. So, even if it sounds ludicrous, I think did quite well to, to wrench his. I mean, the, the Premier League and the chance to play in Europe with Chelsea. All of that; those were attractions enough in themselves. And he had a he had a bumpy relationship with Hullet. So it, it wasn't simply that they'd worked together before that, that attracted Luca Vialli. The idea about London life, you know, still swinging London for him then was really really big. And I think he was iconic in terms of the way in which the Premier League was was becoming then the number one brand in the world. And, and those images that you talked about, Shane, when they were pumped out around the world, and it, it was still a time when the impact of having Schmeichel and Bergkamp and Zola and Di Canio and Gianluca Vialli in the Premier League was was doing enormous things for their brand. For, I think we talked about brands less I think the clubs perhaps were not that interested in what they were doing for the Premier League brand itself. But Gianluca Vialli doesn't just imprint on our mind because of his, his wit as a footballer or because he was iconic in a Chelsea era when, you know, everything seemed to be happening um, in terms of, like, the, the stadium problem was gone and the, the, the footballers were attractive and multinational. It, he did a big thing for the Premier League in choosing London and choosing Chelsea. And I think he is iconic. And all I would say, um, there are many, many, many thousands of people who've lost much more in losing Luca Vialli, but I felt like I lost somebody who'd been really hugely important in my life, friendly, kind, who taught me things, who'd given me access. One of the last things he did um, after that, uh, for me after that Euro Championship 
that you were talking about was was recommend to Mancini to, to come on the podcast. He said, "No problem at all. I'd love to. I'd love to listen to him talk to you. Just a, a generous, kind man." And in and in all sport, I think when you get people who are ruthless winners, to find as well that they can be thoughtful and kind and and maybe a little bit just like us. I think it reinforces our love for them. Yeah, 100%. Um, Graham, that was lovely. Thanks very much for that. I, I do want to just ask you one last question about the um, the situation at, at Barcelona where it seems as if Xavi's got a grip of everything and actually, um, you know, because at, at the end of last season, it started well and then at the end of last season, there was a bit of a tail off and people were like, ooh, what's going to happen here? But he's had his pre-season, he's had his World Cup extra pre-season and um, a tricky game against Atletico away from home. They win that and all of a sudden... Confidence courses through. Am I, am I reading too much into this? It's a it's a monster monster uh, result and, and game. It was it was just fabulous. It had everything that you want from La Liga, with lots of elements that you might see in the Bundesliga and the Premier League too. Because it was frantic, it was end to end. It was so intense physically and mentally that several players were absolutely dropping by the end. There were chances galore, and therefore to draw back a little bit and 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 say, look, let's take some micro from the macro. Yeah, things look definitely better because Javi's players are performing for him, working hard for him. But there's a there's a, a, a bigger picture to, to talk about. The top of La Liga, uh, Real Madrid threw away the chance to, to, to test Barcelona again because they lost at Villarreal on Saturday. But if you look at the way in which uh, a pretty strong Barcelona side went to a tiny little club, Intercity and Alicante in the Cup during the week, Three three dropfuls and they won an extra time. Fine, you're true. That's what the cup's about. They conceded three times. They conceded two per game in the Champions League and were knocked out and are back in the Europa League. And if you want, it's now's not the day. I know you don't have the time, but if you want to put magnifying glass on some of the positions in in Champions team, there's work to do to improve the type of player there. And yet they can't. They're really now much more manacled and, and hamstrung than they were last summer or last winter market because of financial fair play in Spain. So positive, definitely. It was a, if people didn't watch it, um, I guess it's on via play in Ireland. And more for you, it was absolutely fantastic. It jeopardises Atleti's possibilities of playing in the Champions League next season, having already been eliminated from this tournament this season. It further jeopardises Cholo Simeone's possibility of staying on as coach. I think at the moment his his days are numbered and and maybe don't go beyond this summer. So a titanic match, hugely entertaining, and things are going well for Xavi, but he has a lot of work to do. A, A semi-final in the Super Cup coming up in Saudi Arabia this Wednesday against Betis with a really tired squad. So before I join in and get Xavi's time at Barcelona 2 built up, let's, let's talk again after the semi-final on Wednesday and then potentially the final against Real Madrid on, on Sunday. And then, then you'll want to talk to me again and let's see how they've done. All right, looking forward to it. Graham, great stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. Cheers, cheers lads. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.